Welcome to The Jewelry District, a podcast by JCK, brought to you by the De Beers Institute of Diamonds. Today, Rob Bates and Victoria Gamowski talk with Lawrence Hess, Executive Director of The Plum Club. Hey everyone, welcome to The Jewelry District. This is Victoria Gamelski, Editor-in-Chief of JCK and jckonline.com, calling in from Los Angeles, and I'm with... Rob Bates, News Director of JCK and jckonline.com, calling in from New York City, where you just were here, correct? I was. I was in and out in a flash. I came in for the Tiffany extravaganza. And let me tell you, it was quite an extravaganza. It was Thursday, April 27th on the eve of the store opening, the big flagship, what they're calling the landmark at 57th and 5th. This party was was quite something. There were maybe 80 plus celebrities there. The mayor, director Boz Lorman, artist Jeff Koons, and then Katy Perry, of course, performed. Um, DJ Mark Ronson, the Rockettes. And what was interesting is the after party took place in the temporary space that Tiffany had occupied while their big landmark was being renovated over the last three and a half years. And so when we ended up moving over for that party where Katy Perry performed in the Rockettes and closed out with DJ Mark Ronson. You know, it was like we were partying on the, you know, the sort of the bones of the temporary Tiffany. There was something very symbolic about that, just really kind of partying it down. And there were, I I think what was most impressive to me is just how many wealthy clients there were in attendance. That's what caught my eye is just the incredible amount of wealth there. I saw one woman sporting a Tiffany Blue Nautilus, you know, that piece goes for about $3 million on the secondary market. This is the Patek Philippe Tiffany Blue Dial Nautilus that was released at the end of 2021. And that was, you know, just right away, just happened to glance at somebody. And there were just so many, very lots of international clients too. It wasn't just Americans. There was a whole contingent from Asia. I assume lots of people from Europe, although it was obviously hard to say where they were from. A very glamorous party. And I just am very curious to hear, you know, in a year's time or so, how sales at that landmark are going. Hey, did you like the design? Is the design nice? I thought it was stunning. I thought it was a real, quite wow, a temple. Really. I mean, and you know, I went up to the seventh floor and took around, there's a whole section devoted to masterpieces. And it's also, the seventh floor is also where they have the Patek Philippe salon. I mean, there were several items I saw. Bird on a rock brooch is a lot of those, you know, perched on $2 million stones. I should say, I just got back from AGS Conclave in Louisville. And I'm a little, I'm a little discombobulated, you know, that post-travel discombobulation, but. Uh, yeah. Well, be- before yeah. we get to our guest, any, any highlights from AGS? I think it was uh, really interesting. There was an interesting session on chat GBT and yeah, I, I really, I enjoyed it. Uh, you know, I think it's always a good thing. Andre Agassi spoke, but you know, he wasn't kind of the standard motivational speech. He kind of was like talking about his struggles and uh, he, he seemed a little down at times, but uh, it was, it was interesting. I heard somebody mentioned to me what a tough life he'd had and i Whatever. he needs to go to more tiffany parties i think <laughs> yeah, that, that'll solve your troubles there you go didn't quite solve mine but i'm you know who knows there's still time <laughs> 
All right. Well, it, I think it's time to welcome our guest. We're thrilled to talk to him. He's got a real pulse on the on the marketplace, and he will be sharing, I think, some interesting research that he's been privy to. Now, of course, he's Lawrence Hess, Executive Director of the Plum Club. This is one of our industry's most esteemed organizations, 50-plus members, some of the most important manufacturers in this industry, based in New York, headquartered there, huge presence, of course, at JCK. Lawrence, it's so nice to have you. You're calling in from the office, are you? Yeah, you know, I, I am. I'm uh, here in Englewood, New Jersey. I mean, we're a New York corporation, but uh, our office is here, here in Englewood, New Jersey, and uh, keeps us out of uh, having to commute over the bridge every day. That's right. We did have this chat right before. As you mentioned, you, you are. This is your busy time, right? We are pretty much uh, full bore here, getting ready for JCK in just a few short weeks. Uh, looking forward to it. Yeah, me too. Exactly. How, how many people are going to be in this year's exhibition? Uh, at the Plum Club, we have 50 members exhibiting in a uh, approximately 75,000 square foot pavilion. That's amazing. Yeah. It's where I go when I need a, a break from, from the hard floors of Vegas. It's always so plus. Yeah, it has the nicest carpet. Everybody always says that the the, the carpet and the ice cream. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, exactly. Uh, Well, you know, we always start off, so we'll clearly get to JCK and some of the things you'll be presenting there, but we always start off with a bit of background, and you've got one of the more interesting backgrounds given your your family. So uh, Lawrence Hess, son of a famous, famous designer, Jose Hess, who passed, was it in 21? Uh, Two years ago this past February. Two years. So I'm sorry. We you. What a great loss for well, certainly for for you, but for the industry. I mean, his name is um, one of those we cite when we talk about the evolution of this business, and of course, the designer jewelry category. Tell us. Tell us about your background and what it was like to grow up with such a talented father and mother, for that matter. Um, yeah, well, so yeah, both my father and uh, and stepmom Maggie, uh, my father Jose Hess and Maggie Hess, um, both designers in their own right. You know, we always joke. Uh, there, there was actually a, a JCK article uh, many years ago with Jose Hess and Henry Dunay on the cover, and they were called the uh, fathers of jewelry design. We always we always joke around and call them the grandfather of jewelry design. And, and he's missed, but you know, he left a great legacy and really uh, instilled in me my love for the industry, love for the people in the industry. You know, we work in a really, really great industry. When you were growing up, was it something that was talked about a lot, jewelry? Was it part of your life? Oh, my father was a, jewelry was his life. Um, so yes, absolutely. We went uh, into the office when we were off from school. I sat at the bench and learned jewelry. As a matter of fact, it's interesting. My father was a past president of the Plum Club. And I remember when the first pavilion was being built, I remember on our dining room table, in our formal dining room table, the plans for the pavilion being out there for months. And he would come home at night and work on the plans on our dining room table. So from start to finish, yes, it was, it was you know, about the industry, but also a lot about family. Um, those are the, the two things that were most important to him in his life, family and, and the industry. And I remember, you know, there's not many people in the industry who have had a catchphrase and he had one, uh, I'm strong like a bull. Did he say that a lot, like at home or? Not, not only did he, did he say it a lot at home, it was 
his answer. Anyone who knew my father would not be surprised to hear that. Uh, he said, strong like a bull, and it, it didn't matter what was going on at that moment. That would be his answer, whether things were good, whether things were bad. I love that. My dad used to say that too, actually. Really? Your dad? Well, how? It's, uh, it's a thing. Well, speaking of catchphrases, so your stepmom recently published a book about a lot of his quotes. Is that right? It's called The Beauty and All. Was that something sort of a labor of love for her after he passed? I think what happened was as as time was going on, he and Maggie sat down and started collecting thoughts and quotes and tried to put down, you know, his feelings and his thoughts and his quotes and his aspirations. And I think she took that and once he passed, made that a labor of love to uh, memorialize him. That's awesome. That's so cool. It's a beautiful book with a gorgeous uh, cover of his face, obviously. One of my favorite pictures of him. I, I assume when you started off, that was, was that your first job working for him? Not really. You know, one of the things that my father did teach me or that, that, that I learned from him at a young age was that nothing should be handed to you, you know? So uh, before going to work for our family business, it was kind of known that before that happened, I would have to have outside experience. You know, I went to GIA. I, I was getting my gemology degree. I met Bill and Jeannie Larson. They're the owners of a retail store at the time in La Jolla, I believe now in Fallbrook. I spent half a year there and then half a year in their wholesale division, uh, which was Pal International. And at the time, in the early 80s, tourmaline was the big craze. And they were the main miners of tourmaline in the San Diego area. And after getting uh, some education from them, my first job in real job in the industry or paying job in the industry. I went on to work for a manufacturer in the East Coast. I worked both in their factory and then as a salesman. And then when I felt I was ready, I, I went to my father and I asked him for a job. And interestingly, by working for other people, I was not only able to learn from my father within his business or our business, but I was also able to teach and bring new ideas into the business. You know, and that, and that kind of always made me feel, I won't say on equal footing, but it always made me feel like I was bringing value to the business outside of what I learned within the business. What years was that that you actually worked with him? You know, the mid late 80s is when I started working at Jose Hess. I started literally cleaning bathrooms, sorting diamonds, cleaning up the benches in the factory. And, you know, it was step by step. Did you ever think of going into the design aspect of it? My forte was not design. However, what what I, I, I did do quite a bit is my father would have designs or and Maggie would develop designs and we'd have designs. And I would sit down with him and go through them and, you know, say, hey, I think this is a great design. I think this is a great design. Quite often, I was pretty good at picking the winners. So I, I didn't actually design, but I, I think I had a good eye for design. This podcast is brought to you by the De Beers Institute of Diamonds. At the JCK show June 2nd through June 5th, the De Beers Group booth will showcase their latest developments in diamond provenance and technological innovation. With representatives on hand from Tracer, you can learn about the world's only distributed diamond blockchain that starts at the source and operates at scale which now houses more than 1 million registered rough diamonds. The team from the De Beers Institute of Diamonds will present the Institute's suite of services, and the Ignite team will show a range of cutting-edge diamond sorting and verification technologies. Visit the De Beers group at JCK booth 14109. 
You know, when I think about your father's role in the greater context of the industry, and we did a little bit of this coverage when we did our own 150th anniversary issue, was just that prior to your dad and, you know, a couple of others, David Yerman, maybe John Hardy, that there wasn't a lot of, you know, name designers. It was just generic jewelry design. Do you recall that kind of decision making for him to sell under his own name, for him to promote his designs as the designer? Was that a kind of a topic at home or or was it just gradual enough where it didn't really get discussed? Well, I, I won't say it was a topic that we necessarily discussed at home, but what I can tell you is that prior to the jewelry design movement really getting started, the whole designer clothing movement started. And I do remember my father once saying, if Gloria Vanderbilt can put her name on someone's behind, <laughs> then I can put my name on a piece of jewelry. And he didn't quite say it like that, but um, that is what he said. <laughs> That's what he meant. I love that. The company at the time was actually called Flarecraft. And so it was Flarecraft, and then it was Flarecraft Jose Hess, and then it was Jose Hess Flarecraft, and then Flarecraft went away. So it was, it was incremental. And was it different working for him than dealing with him at home or? That's a tough question. Uh, so at work, at work, he was the boss. There was very little, if any, nepotism. I, I can give you one example. You know, when I walked into work in the morning, I used to always go into my father's office. I gave him a hug and a kiss, did my work. And when I left, I walked into his office, I gave him a hug and a kiss, and I walked out. And I remember once walking to his office, he had one of our diamond setters sitting in front of him. He was They were working on a very complicated piece. I came in, walked around the desk. I gave him a hug and a kiss. And the diamond setter's jaw just about hit the ground because he didn't even realize that Jose was my father. You know, we, we really kept that piece of it separate. He was He ran the company and we were the employees. After hours, there was absolutely discussion about the business and talk about, you know, ideas and thoughts. But he really instilled a, a passion within us. You know, you had talked about his book before. One of, the, one of the things he did say in his book, don't be a spectator in life. In all senses of that quote, he taught us. Beautiful. I wish I'd known him more. I'd met him once or twice, but didn't really ever get a chance to know him. So my loss. At what point did you did you move on? What 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 was did you immediately head to the Plum Club after working for your dad, or were there places stops in between? My father made the decision to semi retire, and we sold our business. I worked with the company we sold our business to for a while. Uh, had a contract with them and fulfilled my contract. And then I went to work for one of my father's closest friends. His name is Marvin Markman. And at the time, he was the chairman of the Plum Club. And at some point, he had mentioned to me that the administrative director was moving overseas and that the Plum Club was looking to grow and expand and wanted to take that administrative director role and turn it into an executive director role. And I'd been involved with the organization since its, since its inception, and I really felt I could make a difference. So uh, I threw my hat into the ring. I interviewed for the position, and now it's almost 14 years later, and, and I'm a, one of the industry's premier supplier organizations. And, you know, when I was coming up with questions, I realized, you know, I don't really know the history of the Plum Club. It's kind of something that's always been around as long as I've been around. So, I mean, do you want to kind of take us how it began? And Let's see. I'm, I'm going to try to get timing as best I can. You know, the main jewelry show in the early 80s took place in New York. A lot of the suppliers used to throw individual parties for the retailers 
on Saturday night. Like that was the big thing. Everybody threw a party. The problem was that the retailers would go from party to party. They'd go party hopping and they'd spend a little bit of time at each one of those parties. But on the host side, they wouldn't really get to spend any quality time with those retailers. So a few of the more important suppliers got together and they said, hey, we're spending a lot of money on these parties. Why don't we group together and let's throw one really big party with great food and great entertainment. And then the clients will want to spend the entire evening with us. And that's what they did. And it was really very successful. Then after a few years and adding quite a few more members, they talked about it some more and they said, you know, why don't we take the social club and group together and exhibit at the show? They did that. And once again, it was very successful. A few few years later, uh, the club was asked to be part of the Las Vegas show and to create a pavilion at the Las Vegas show that JCK at the time was forming. And keep in mind that at that time, pavilions weren't like the pavilions we have today. Creating a pavilion at that, you know, you, you had, you know, groups of people exhibiting together, maybe the Platinum Guild had their people together. There was really no pavilion. And true to the ideal of the Plum Club of being innovators, uh, the Plum Club built its first Las Vegas pavilion, and the rest is history. Uh, we've been there 30 plus years. I guess this is 31 years now. And how's that? How how did the organization evolve? We, as I said, we started as a social club. We then became a an exhibiting organization, and then the organization started talking about, "Hey, look, we're this group of suppliers. We get together for four days a year. At the time, I guess it was five days a year, and then it went to four days. And we spend a tremendous amount of money, a tremendous amount of time, a tremendous amount of resources for four days. What can we do to expand upon that?" So true to its ideal of being innovators, we created the tagline of educate, innovate, and connect. Uh, we've developed year-round programming that not only connects our retailers with our members at the show, but throughout the year, but we also provide education. You know, we recently created what we call our gift to the industry. It's called the Jewelers Resource Center. It's an immersive 3D environment. It has comprehensive and searchable database of jewelry industry knowledge. It's available 365 days a year. Uh, we feature webinars on there, trend articles, research articles, podcasts. We've really tried to evolve the Plum Club to be a wholesome, year-round industry that isn't just about sales. It's about giving back to the industry. It's about educating the industry. You know, they say a rising tide raises all ships. And, and that's what we truly believe. I'm obviously aware of all that education you offer. We talk about your podcast all the time in our own sort of jewelry agenda that goes out on Sundays. And I'm aware of all the webinars you do. And so I'd, I'd love for your take on kind of the state of the business at the moment. Feels like a strange year. I don't know if I'm alone in that assessment, but what's your take? What power... How are your members feeling? What What's the vibe? All right. So that's a little bit of a loaded question, um, but I, I we could probably spend a whole podcast on that. Uh, but I would say cautiously optimistic. Uh, look, pre-pandemic, uh, the in industry was, in my mind, trending downward. Uh, we were giving up market share to luxury experiences over material things, uh, for lack of a better word. And then during the pandemic, that really all changed. I think people realized their mortality. They realized that, you know, material things 
in a good way have a place and that gifting of items could provide that legacy or, or had a, a meaning and material things were okay. And the luxury market just took off and, and you know, the jewelry industry kind of led the charge to that. So, you know, now we're seeing that slow somewhat, but it, all the industry reports that I'm reading show that the, the jewelry industries are going to continue to grow. And are people generally feeling pretty good about prospects at the show? You know, are people making appointments or is it just feel like a robust a year as ever? Absolutely. I mean, our, our members are looking forward to a great show and connecting with all their clients. The Plum Club is going to be celebrating our 40th anniversary this year at the show. We're going to be presenting our third research paper and consumer survey, uh, which, by the way, will be presented on Sunday, June 4th at the show, at the showcase stage at 11 a.m. Sorry for the shameless plug there. <laughs> but uh, any retailers interested in that are invited to attend the presentation or visit one of the Plum Club members. But yeah, we're looking for, for a nice, nice attendance and, and, and robust shop. Speaking of shameless plugs, I'd like to give one for that same Sunday. Our show organizers have reminded us to share this. And of course, I think everybody will be excited to attend. But that Sunday night is the JCK Rocks concert featuring Andy Grammer. A lot of people will know his music. He's a multi-platinum singer. Honey, I'm good. Keep your head up. And he was a contestant on Dancing with the Stars. So hopefully we'll see you all first at the Plum Club presentation, uh, sharing their research. And I do want to hear more about that. And then, of course, next at JCK Rocks that evening, Sunday night. So thank you for those two shameless plugs. <laughs> so tell us about this, the research you've done. This has been going on for a long time, the, the consumer research, correct? Yeah, this is actually our third iteration. We started off, we did one that was more product-based. It was so successful, we decided to do it again in 21. A little bit less product-based and more consumer-based and state-of-the-industry-based. And then we've expanded on that this year to really focus in on the consumer, the state-of-the-industry, post-pandemic things. So it was, uh, we've really dug into that. And what kind of things have you been finding that have really surprised you or people should be taking note of? All right. So it would be impossible for me to cover it all here. Come see us Sunday at the show. But some of the things that I found very, very interesting. Uh, one is female self-purchase. It's always been kind of a buzzword and things that people were looking at. And it's been increasing for a while, but it really grew rapidly over the past few years. In our research, we found that an estimated 67% of women having made a non-bridal purchase for themselves in 2020. Another one that really astounded me was in regards to millennials who are now really coming into the marketplace with a lot of wealth. And we found that the average millennial spends about 157% more on jewelry than the average American. And although millennials account for 23% of the total world population, they make up 57% of all jewelry expenditures globally. And then one last one that was, I shouldn't be say, say it was a surprise, but that I found very, very interesting was in regards to sustainability and responsible business practices. We found that 71% of consumers are willing to pay more for retailers that have a commitment to sustainability, and 69% are willing to pay more at a retailer who demonstrates diversity and inclusivity. You know, we've been talking about sustainability and responsible business practices for years, but that is really now coming to fruition at the cash register. That's so encouraging. 
that's just such encouraging news because you do wonder if all the talk that we as industry people are sort of, you know, as editors, as organizers, as leaders, all that conversation we, we have and all the content we share about these things, whether it really connects at retail. And it sounds like it is. What's interesting, I mean, one of the things that, you know, keeps coming up uh, when I speak to people in the industry is it had these two amazing years. And it might have shown that perhaps the market was bigger than than we realized and that we thought. I mean, is there anything that you've found in the research that can kind of hold on to some of the gains that the industry made during the pandemic? And I think I, I think it has, to some extent, held on to at least some of the gains, but anything that, that people need to be thinking about to make sure that, you know, it, it just doesn't go back to how it was pre-COVID? I look at it like this. There was a pendulum, and prior to the pandemic, that pendulum was swinging left. The pandemic came along, and that pendulum swung and got pinned all the way to the right. And now it's coming back down a little bit, but it's still staying to the right of center. And I don't think we're going to give back anything. As a matter of fact, all, all the research we've done shows that our industry will continue to grow. I mean, yes, we had a couple of boom years and you know we may not be able to sustain. I've talked to people who had 50% and 100% growth over two years, and that may not be sustainable. But our research does show that the industry will continue to grow. I think they're even talking about something like 3 or 4% per year. Mm -hmm. So I don't think we're giving back anything. I think our industry will continue to grow as long as we keep the eye on the ball and keep working towards meeting the needs of the consumers. Uh, well, it's interesting is you have both lab grown and natural diamond suppliers. So you're, you don't necessarily have a, a stake in the game as some of the, you know, some of the organizations, you know, they'll, they'll favor this or they'll favor that. I mean, what has your research shown as far as this whole lab grown diamond thing? Okay. So we could spend an entire podcast just on that question. But what I can say is that lab grown diamonds are not going anywhere. Our survey showed that 80% of consumers are aware of lab-grown diamonds being used in fine jewelry. And while natural is still preferred overall, a majority told us that they are open to either buying or receiving a piece of jewelry with lab-grown diamonds. I think the key is in education. Our survey showed that 47% said that they don't know enough to be confident on the differences between natural diamonds and lab-grown diamonds. 32% said that they don't know the differences. And when we asked about a definition of lab-grown diamonds, and we gave it was a multiple choice. Fifty nine percent were mistaken in what that description is. So for a retailer, I think they need to educate their customers by providing a clear and unbiased explanation of the choices that are open to the consumer. And one little other plug to help with this, and, and something we can offer to the retailer is in our Jewelers Resource Center, we produced a brochure that can be used at the counter when discussing both lab grown and natural diamonds. It's unbiased. It can be downloaded at the Jewelers Resource Center, and they can use it to help educate the consumers. Well, so Plum Club has required its members to join the Responsible Jewelry Council. So tell us how that's gone for them. As I mentioned earlier, you know, sustainability and responsible business practices have become increasingly important to the consumer and really by extension to the retailer who sells that consumer. That has led to many more retailers asking about how their product is sourced, where it comes from, supply chain. So for many suppliers, that's a little bit of a tough question because they really can't answer it. For Plum Club members who've gone through the rigorous certification process of the Responsible Jewelry Council, it's really not a problem. 
part of this, the certification process requires that information along every step of the supply chain. You know, every retailer can be assured that if, if they're doing business with a Plum Club member, the product they're purchasing has been vetted to be responsibly sourced. But really also keep in mind, RJC membership is also open to retailers who want to show their commitment to responsible supply chain, both within our industry and to the customer. And as I mentioned earlier, people are willing to pay more for that. You know, it's, 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 a, it's a really important piece of the puzzle for our industry to get there. Thank you so much, Lawrence. It's yes, thank you. Such a pleasure to have you and looking forward to sitting through Michael O'Connor's presentation, getting the details and obviously seeing you at- And the, the plush carpet and the ice cream. <laughs> Definitely that. <laughs> well, I look forward to seeing all of you at JCK. I hope the listeners here will all be at JCK. And uh, we're looking forward to a fantastic show, a fantastic year and uh, keep it on putting our industry at top of mind everywhere. You're very positive like your father. <laughs> <laughs> I had a good teacher. There you go. Thanks for listening to The Jewelry District. I'm Natalie Comet, the producer of the podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast wherever you may listen. Any views expressed in this podcast do not reflect the opinion of JCK, its management, or its advertisers. Thanks for listening. We hope you join us next time on The Jewelry District by JCK.